This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. We're taping this show on Wednesday morning. Today, our long national nightmare begins. Donald Trump will be our president. We have comments coming up later in this hour from Leila Lalami and from John Nichols. But first, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, editor and publisher of The Nation. Katrina, thanks for joining us on this miserable day. Thank you, John. I think on this morning, it's a gray morning in New York, we grieve. Uh, some of us, even at the nation, have been have wept. Our cover, which we organized this morning, mourn, resist, organize, onwards. Yeah. I mean, we experienced a political earthquake last night. Um, we wake to it this morning. Uh, but despite that temptation to mourn, uh, we have to organize. We've heard that before in our history. And at The Nation, we also rededicate ourselves to our role as journalists of principle and conscience. And I think we also, it's incumbent upon us to understand uh, where we are in a cycle of history. You know, we, um, we saw in the Bernie Sanders-Clinton uh, primary that this was an election about change and a revolt in many ways against the political elites. And, of course, we also saw the bigotry, misogyny, racism that Trump incited, his campaign incited. But I think we need to think hard about how we move forward. Remaking our politics and economy is going to depend on a broad coalition, that Obama coalition that did come out yesterday. But it's going to also need to include substantial numbers of racially anxious white working class people. And ignoring their fears or pandering to them, I think, impoverishes all of us. So Today we recommit. We know the Democratic Party, as you said, John, is in deep disarray. Um, but it means we need to uh, keep fighting for those issues, which were in the most progressive Democratic platform in modern history, and to maybe go back to cities and states uh, as we rebuild in order to make sure that vulnerable communities aren't attacked. That's important. And also that issues we care deeply about are lifted up and not by any measure, dropped, forgotten. Um, and we have to remember also elections, though they're central, are only the beginning of the contest for power. So we have a lot of work to do. We know that at the nation. And um, we had hoped to celebrate last night and go to work this morning. Instead, we grieved, we mourned last night, and we go back to work this morning. Mourn, resist, organize. And 
start by protecting vulnerable uh, communities. I think you're absolutely right that the, the uh, white working class that we've heard so much about has made it clear that the status quo is not uh, acceptable to them, that Clintonism, Clintonism is, is finished. And one of our jobs is to help sketch out what the Absolutely. alternative is. And we certainly got a big start with the Bernie Sanders campaign, which the nation proudly endorsed. Yeah, I think one of the roles, John, and you're so right, you've been associated with the nation in extraordinary ways for so many years, is these are times which rip apart the soul, but also rip apart a system. Uh, I don't usually go around Wednesday mornings quoting Antonio Gramsci, but it's a quote I have affection for, which is that, to paraphrase, the old order is disappearing, the new one is not yet born. And in that twilight, that period, it's our role to put forth, uh, to think anew, to be tested by humility. Uh, what we thought would happen didn't. The unthinkable, unimaginable became real. But we need to really drive forward new ideas, alternative ideas, as we have throughout our history, and to uh, commit to that in the reporting we do, in the ideas work we do, and uh, the debates we have and will have. Uh, I do think you mentioned Clintonism. I would add to that neoliberalism. Yeah. We have, a, we have a piece. Listen, our former nation intern, Edward Miliband, former head of the labor, leader of the Labor Party, was in our offices last Wednesday. And he hoped we would avoid a Brexit fate. Well, what he witnessed in the U.K. and we're witnessing globally, America is experiencing it's a revolt, as I said, against an establishment of both parties in our country, uh, global trade, tax deals of, by, and for the corporations, of crony capitalism. What Bernie Sanders and I think we and others have to offer and the movements is a progressive, inclusive alternative, call it populism if you want, addressing economic insecurity, inequality, new ways of doing that and not turning on each other, but instead turning toward each other. But we got a lot of work. I mean, these corporate trade deals, I think, played a huge role. John Nichols did a very important cover story for the nation earlier this year about how trade would play, and you could run it today, I hate to say, but those Midwest Rust Belt states, trade was a proxy for much more in this election, John. It was about cultural issues as well as economic issues. But unless we address it head-on, globalization, how it's ravaged communities, Unless we find a way to fuse the Obama coalition, the rising American electorate, the extraordinary Latino surge that we saw with this working class, white, African-American, Latino, unless we address how we build an inclusive, progressive, democratic populism, not a scapegoating one, and address the future of work. These are issues that Europe is grappling with and that we will be grappling with. The last thing I'd say is this is our opportunity to um, think anew about America's engagement with the world Though Donald Trump sent mixed signals on foreign policy in this election, I will say that his rejection of the kind of American establishment thinking on liberal interventionism, meet neoconism, uh, is something to explore. I worry that he's the lousiest messenger for kind of different engagement with the world. But what his candidacy revealed is I think Americans are weary of war without end, war weary. And we need to seize that opportunity to rebuild what Tom Hayden would have been at the forefront of, which is a peace and justice diplomacy first movement for the 21st century, bringing together young, old, different movements. We need it. We need it enormously. And I think this is an opportunity. Don Gutenplan, in his lead editorial for The Nation, 
this morning reminds that in 1952, the original Cold War at its height, I.F. Stone, our former Washington correspondent, challenged his readers to back Ike for peace. Wow. <laughs> I, think it, I think a current crisis demands an equal willingness to seize opportunities as they emerge, <clears throat> though I do think our role will be thinking anew, radical thinking, opposition where we must, proposition where we can. Mourn, resist, organize. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, editor and publisher of The Nation. Katrina, we've got a lot of work to do, and I'm so glad that you're taking the lead on this. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. Now it's time to talk with John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. His most recent book is People Get Ready. We reached him today in New York City. John, thanks for helping us try to understand what happened on Tuesday. What did happen on Tuesday? Well, hold it. I thought I was calling you for you to tell me. <laughs> uh, whoa. Uh, what happened on Tuesday um, at the most basic level, and we ought to explain it, I, I think, this way up front, is that Republicans got, through a, a single election, uh, what is referred to as trifecta control of government, now, I'm, I'm stepping away from all the personalities, stepping away from all that. They got trifecta control of government. That means they have the executive branch and both houses of the legislative branch. Uh, they now have the ability to govern in a dramatic way. And it happens that the folks who got this power are, in many ways, the most radical Republican ticket in history. Uh, Donald <clears throat> Trump, we've talked a lot about. We know who Donald Trump is. Uh, at least up to a point. We don't exactly know how he'll govern, but we do know that he comes in there with Mike Pence, a man of Washington, with close ties to the Koch brothers, close ties to the military establishment, close ties to uh, all the folks who kind of pulled the levers in our politics on the right for a long, long time. And, uh, and so we have a new administration that is extremely right-wing, uh, and that's a very big deal. I know that's not the core question you asked. The core question you asked is what happened? How did they come to power? I have one. Um, let, let me inject yeah. one, one other question. Uh, it, uh, I believe it, it's, it's uh, uh, now it's a fact, that, uh, a news fact that uh, Donald Trump came in second in the popular vote. Does yes. that, I, I, that's no apology for, uh, <clears throat> for what happened. But does that have some political significance for us as opponents of Trump? Huge significance. It's incredibly important. In fact, you're so smart, that was where I was going. Ah. Um, these guys uh, got this trifecta control of government uh, for uh, several reasons. Uh, one of them is that uh, we are moving more and more toward a parliamentary-style voting in our, political, in our presidential years. Not toward a parliamentary-style system per se in Congress, but toward voting. And that means that the distance between the presidential candidate and, say, a Senate candidate or a House candidate in their actual vote is much narrower than it used to be. Splitting of tickets in states where you used to see it all the time in the upper Midwest, for instance, that just doesn't happen as much as it used to happen. And that's why, for instance, a Russ Feingold uh, didn't make it through, uh, whereas in the past he used to often have uh, be a real benefit of, of 
uh, ticket splitting. So that's, that's one element of, of what got us here. But the other element is something uh, not new, something very, very old, and that is the corrupt, horrible, indefensible Electoral College. And <laughs> I don't want to, you know, give the Democrats any advice per se, but here's a, here's a little counsel for them. In, in a 16-year period, you've now lost the presidency twice because of the Electoral College. Al Gore won the presidency uh, in most countries in the world, by their measures, uh, by over 500,000 votes in 2000. And now, when all the votes are counted, and, and we have a very lousy, slow, dysfunctional counting system in America, but when all the votes are counted, I, I think that Hillary Clinton will win the presidency by a wider popular vote margin than did Al Gore. And so, you know, one of these days, some Democrat is going to maybe sit up and say, you know, this is kind of problematic, right, that we are now um, losing the presidency on a faster rate than every generation, right? Yeah. We're, we're losing. Yeah. So that's, but that's the other reality. And, and here's, here's the important thing to understand. 53 to 54 We'll see what the final numbers play out. 53 to 54 percent of Americans didn't vote for Donald Trump for president. Um, now, some of them voted for Libertarian, maybe Evan McMullen out in Utah. Some of them might have gone over to Trump if, if they didn't have an alternative. Uh, but certainly, I think an awful lot of folks who perhaps voted for Joe Stein might well have gone over to Hillary Clinton. We don't have to sort that all out except to say this basic thing. Because of the Electoral College... Somebody who only had 47% support, if that, is going to be president of the United States with all the powers of the presidency. And um, also a person who had got more votes is, you know, doing apologies and press conferences today and disappearing. Um, and so this is a big, big deal. And it should be comforting to people. Uh, it's cold comfort, I admit. But it should be somewhat comforting to people to recognize that, um, it, it's not like, you know, 55, 58, 60% of America, that's what you see in a landslide election, something, you know, like 59, 60% voted for Donald Trump. They didn't. In fact, you're, you're closer to landslide saying, don't, we don't want Donald Trump to be president. Um, and so that's a part of the equation. But that, un unless people decide to reform that and actually pass the constitutional amendment that gets rid of the Electoral College, or do the national popular vote model that's been suggested by some folks. We're stuck. Well, I think it's also a fact that uh, there's no way that Trump can fulfill his promises to bring the jobs back from Mexico and China and mm -hmm. simultaneously expand fracking and coal. Uh, he's going to uh, stumble uh, quickly. Uh, uh, what is going to happen then uh, given that he already uh, didn't get as many votes as his opponent? Well, I'm not here to be too uh, much on the bright side, okay? Yeah. Um, I think this is a really good day to be depressed. Yeah. Um, fine day to, to be feeling down. Yeah. Um, but uh, I will tell you one thing that is sort of interesting. We have, for the past 20 years, been in a counter-cyclical political era. What that means is that when one party wins the presidency, the other party tends to do strikingly well in the midterm elections that follow. And so um, even after 9-11, 
Uh, the Democrats in, in 2002 did pretty well in the states and, and credibly in, in some other contests. 2006, they swept to power. But Barack Obama becomes president in 2008. 2010, the Republicans have an incredible uh, wave election. 2014, after Obama's reelected, they have another wave election. So if we accept this countercyclical politics as a reality, that because our federal government just doesn't get things done, uh, because our economy is weakened by austerity, by, you know, frankly, a lot of bad choices, bad trade deals, etc., because all of these things are realities. Uh, the likelihood is that in 2018, Donald Trump is not going to be you know, riding some wave of popularity, and, and the Republicans are not going to be seen as, as doing things particularly better than the Democrats. If that is the case, there is a potential in 2018, especially in the states. Uh, the Congress is very gerrymandered, and the Senate you know, elections of 2018 tend to favor uh, the Republicans. But in the states where the Republicans are so powerful, you have the potential of a real breakthrough, and you could see governorships change, potentially. You could also see a lot of legislative seats change. Why does that matter? Why does that then you know, circle back to the federal? Because 2018 is the most important election, uh, midterm election, uh, in this era, uh, because it's when you choose the legislatures and governors that will do redistricting after yeah. the 2020 census. Yeah. So this is a big deal. And so that is a that's it's a part of our longer term reality. I will only say, though, to get to that, to get to where that works and where that might be a a legitimate calculus, Democrats are going to need a reformation. They are going to, in my opinion, as a party, have to fundamentally change. Yeah. Let me just say, uh, I, I think if there's one message for the Democrats from from this election, it's that the status quo is not acceptable to millions of people who could be Democrats, who should be Democrats, and that it's the end of Clintonism and it's the time for something very different, something along the lines that Bernie Sanders uh, sketched out so effectively <clears throat> uh, in the primaries. Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, certainly the our revolution theories and models, but also the movement that built around um, – uh, Elizabeth Warren, the draft Elizabeth Warren movement that yeah. had a lot of energy to it. It obviously overlapped a lot with the, the Sanders folks. Um, this wonderful movement that we've seen where uh, you have real efforts to elect new district attorneys and prosecuting attorneys around the country uh, as, in many ways, an extension of the Black Lives Matter movement and a host of other movements that have said, you know, criminal justice has to change and we could change some of it in an electoral model. The fact is that we have lots of energy Right. And much of it around the Democratic Party, either peripherally or directly. But that's certainly not at the top. It's not at the high levels. And, um, you know, I can promise you this. If the Democratic Party had had a coherent, passionate, top to bottom message as regards economic and social justice. And and there have been no doubts that this is, you know, this is why the Democrats compete for power. They compete for power to raise wages of 15 to uh, you know, re-empower trade unions, to address climate change, to address you know, you know systemic racism, and to make it you know, really something that's that's just understood. It's not a slogan. It's not a campaign season conversation. It's real. If that um, was the case, I, I don't think that you would have had as much of a collapse in the Democratic vote in some key states. And I think that you very probably would have had, you might, I'm not going to go so far as to say that Clinton would have won, maybe, maybe not, but I think it probably would have been better enough that you could have possibly won a couple of these Senate seats. And this is a really weird thing, John. 
when all is said and done, Democrats did have, it appears, some advancement in the Senate, um, not sufficient. But, um, you know, it's not a lot of votes across this country that needed to shift in the presidential race and in these Senate races to have a very radically different result. And so we're not talking about having to completely change everything, but we are talking about having to have a much more coherent message that, that basically makes the point of why someone might vote, you know, for a bunch of Democrats. Republicans, whether you like them or not, they're pretty good at that. They they give their base a point. It may not be a point that you and I agree with, who maybe one we're horrified by, but um, you know, you elect government Republicans, you're going to get weaker gun laws. Uh, you're going to have you know pushback against social progress on a host of issues. Uh, you're going to have an economy that you know airs much more toward um, non-union, uh, you know, basically what I would call crony capitalism and whatever they whatever you want to call it. But the bottom line is. You know what you're getting with Republicans. The Democrats need to be a huge alternative to that. And I think, and this may be counterintuitive to some folks, I think that at the heart of that must be integrity in a sense that, you know, many other countries around the world have real movements for public integrity integrity and transparency. I think the Democratic Party uh, really needs to, you know, brand that out to make that, say, you elect Democrats, you're going to get people who really do stand for certain things. They're not going to go into lobbying the second they get done. They're not going to try and become rich. John Nichols, freedomatthenation.com. John, thanks for helping us understand what happened in this horrible week. I'll call you in a few minutes. You can tell me what happened. Okay. Thanks a lot. Now it's time to talk with Leila Lalami. She's a columnist for The Nation and critic at large for the Los Angeles Times. Her novel, The Moore's Account, was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. It's out now in paperback. She lives in L.A. and teaches writing at UC Riverside. But today we reached her in Buffalo, where she's speaking tonight about Muslims in America. Leila, thanks for talking with us on this miserable day. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Donald Trump... It's probably the worst threat to Muslims in America since the, at least since the USA Patriot uh, Act was passed after 9-11. What's it like for you as a Muslim in America the day after his victory at the polls? I have to say, I mean, obviously I feel quite terrified about what the future holds. I know that many people over the last uh, year have been making jokes about Trump and, you know, thinking that he couldn't win. But for those of us in the Muslim community, we've long taken him very seriously and taken him at his word. Uh, And so to see him receive so many millions of votes uh, and to to become the president-elect, in a sense, it feels as if the mask has fallen. And if all, it feels as if all pretenses that this is a country that could be inclusive of all of us, including those of us of the Muslim persuasion, we can let go of that pretense now, it seems to me. Um, so, yeah, I, it's just a feeling of horror and uh, and fear and obviously deep, deep concern for the country in which uh, I'm, I'm raising a family. Trump's... Uh... Last statements about his policy proposals 
for uh, Muslims was extreme vetting of yes. immigrants, and he can certainly do that by executive uh, order. Uh, seems to me the the sort of informal and unofficial and vigilante actions of his supporters are are an immediate uh, potential threat. Absolutely, and we've been seeing an uptick of that uh, leading up to to last night. I mean, we've seen the attacks. There was, for example, in I live in California, and and as you do, and. Um, there was that recent threat against the Islamic Center of Southern California, which is in, in downtown L.A. So it, 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 I think it says a lot about a candidate when his name, his last name, be, becomes shorthand for uh, hatred. When your name is crawled across a black church in the South uh, and that church is burned, it, it, it basically the name becomes a symbol for something. Um, and so, so yeah, it, it's it's frightening and it's it's scary. One of the things that that I think we've been told over the last year is that a lot of this has to do with economic grievances uh, of the white working class, and I'm just not sure that I buy that theory. I think, of course, that there are. I absolutely think that there are voters who are hurting. I absolutely think that there are people who have been left out of whatever small economic recovery we've seen in the last uh, eight years, and that these people are uh, are fighting back with the only thing that they have, which is their vote. However, I think that a very sizable, sizable portion of his voters are drawn by his authoritarian message. In one of your earlier columns, John, you wrote about how electoral patterns in the United States are very stable. It doesn't seem to much matter who is running for, in, on the Democratic side or who is running on the Republican side. Very, very roughly, we're going to end up with with the same numbers on each side, and then we have a certain number of swing voters who go both ways, right? Do you remember that column? I'm amazed that you remember that column. <laughs> do, you remember the, do you remember the title of that column? I hate to bring this up now. Uh, no, 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 no. What this says about the, the, the electorate is that there is a tendency to vote for the party and then to rationalize yeah. whatever it is about the candidate that needs to be rationalized to make the choice palatable. And very naively, I thought that that was true of other candidates, but that it could not possibly be true of Donald Trump, simply because this was a man who he's somebody with no experience of political office. He made his fame by telling people that they were fired. He spent the last year insulting women and has allegations of rape and assault against him. Um, regularly retweeted neo-Nazis and anti-Semites. Bragged about his money and his penis. Made promises that he was going to build a wall and that the Mexicans were going to pay for it. Wanted to bring back torture. I mean, so many of these things were so extreme that I very naively thought that that pattern that we had been seeing in, in previous elections would not hold for this uh, candidate, who, in my view, is a fascist. So I thought, you know, he would be the exception, <clears throat> and people would be deserting his ranks, uh, the ranks of his party, rather, and then vote for the vote against him anyway, vote for uh, the Democrats. 
and we have not seen that at all. Uh, I just wanted to to say that the title of my article, which you have so politely uh, not <laughs> mentioned, was "Relax, Trump Can't Win." I wrote that oh, yes. back oh, John, in famous June. Last words, Don't feel so bad. You uh, are not alone. <laughs> <laughs> I was Many not alone. Was. I was really, really wrong. So were we all. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of people just didn't think. I genuinely, look, I'm an immigrant, and I've been living in this country for 20 years, and I thought I knew it pretty well. And I thought that I really wanted to believe in the better angels of our nature. I really thought that when you have a fascist running for the presidency, surely people would see that. But that just hasn't been the case. That just hasn't been the case. People are attracted to that message. Um, and my worry up until Tuesday was actually that the Republican Party would think, I mean, I wasn't convinced. I really did have this sinking feeling in my stomach that we were being overly optimistic. But I thought that what would happen is that Clinton would win by a narrow margin and then that the Republicans would take the wrong message from this and would think that the problem wasn't uh, that their party is is morally corrupt, but that their messenger was the wrong one. And now I say I was completely wrong. I was completely wrong. So you are not alone. Um, and what they are going to take from this is that they are right. They are going to take from this that it is okay to want to ban an entire religion. They're going to take from this that it's okay to demand of the people who are of a certain race or religion, that they abide by different rules. You've seen this already with the lawsuit in Nevada when they thought that things were not going to go their way, and they, they sent a lawyer down there to try and challenge the, the validity of the vote because, of the, because so many Hispanics were voting in Nevada. And so, so, so I think that this is, this is the, the, the lesson that's going to be taken from this. I think you're right. There's there's not much doubt about uh, what what goes in Donald Trump's America. Whatever he said at at his victory speech, you know, we should all unite and we're all Americans. We know what Donald Trump America looks like. It's it's a world where uh, white people uh, have power and can be cruel and bigoted and and towards people who aren't white. I mean, this is the guy who was the, the founder of, of the, the birther lie. Uh, Absolutely. And, Absolute. you know, I think he has actually spent more time and energy attacking Latino immigrants, but there are so many, you know, millions of Latino um, uh, immigrants. Uh, it's, the Muslims are a much smaller group and much, much more vulnerable. And of I wouldn't be surprised if they were the the first to to feel the the brunt of his uh, cruelty and bigotry. Of course, and the thing is, is that the Muslim community is the most surveilled community uh, in the country, and as the, this surveillance apparatus was built, many people thought, "Oh, it's fine," you know, because Obama's president. Why are you all so worried about this? Now that Trump is president, how do, how do people feel about that surveillance apparatus? This is a man who has threatened repeatedly during his campaign uh, and, and warned the press about what will happen to them when he's president. Well, he's the president-elect. So 
I take him at his word because I have nothing else but his words to judge him by. I have no voting record. I have no service record. He was not in the military. He was not in the Senate. He was not in Congress. He did not even run a little tiny town. So I have nothing to go by but what he tells me in his speeches and what he tweets at 3 o'clock in the morning. To me, it isn't about policy. To me, it is about morality. It is about very, very basic understanding of what what role uh, the rule of law plays in a country. And when a candidate so brazenly tells you he can murder someone in broad daylight and not lose a vote, and you willingly walk into that voting booth and cast your vote for him, how are you? I mean, how can we have a dialogue with this? How how is it possible to have a dialogue with this? Leila, we need your voice now more than ever. So thanks for all your work. We're going to need more of it in the next four years. And, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much, John. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>